Hello and welcome to the Have We Got Planning News For You podcast series. My name is Charlie Banner and I'm a member of the panel of the show, which is made up of five senior barristers who specialise in planning law, who came together at the start of lockdown last year to inform, entertain and most importantly help raise money for charity. We've never charged the show, but we've always encouraged viewers to make a donation, either to the NHS Combined Charities page or other charities such as Shelter or Local Charity of your choice. You'll find details on our website. Enjoy the podcast. Good afternoon and welcome once more to Have We Got Planning News For You. Um, thank you very much indeed for joining us again this week. Um, may I start with the usual reminders? Firstly, as you all know, we broadcast the show for free, but please do consider making a charity donation. Um, charities we support include the NHS Combined Charities Just Giving page and Shelter, of course, um, after last week's episode. But please feel free to donate to a charity of your choice if you prefer. And secondly, for those watching live, please do keep the questions and banter flowing as uh, always. And in particular, do let us know any questions you may have for our special guest, more on whom in a moment. Now, our theme this week is design and building beautiful. The ideal follow on, um, somebody has suggested on LinkedIn, from last week's discussion about the housing crisis, given that historically, at least, there's been a perceived tension uh, between volume delivery of housing on the one hand and building high quality, beautiful um, housing on the other hand. Uh, and there's no one better uh, to help us explore whether this tension is real or just mythical, or if it is real, how to cut that Gordian knot, than our special guest, Nicholas Boy Smith. Um, our founding director of Create Streets, interim chair of Building Better, Building Beautiful, Beautiful, a member of the task force behind the planning white paper, which of course included a provision for Building Beautiful, and recently appointed head of the new national design body. Nicholas, um, good afternoon. Thank you so much for joining us. Hello. Um, thank you for asking me. Um, where, where you're calling from, um, what you've nominated as this week's theme and, and what you're drinking. Uh, I didn't have nominated a theme. I thought I just nominated a drink. I, I'm, I'm, I'm calling from South London um, and I've nominated the drink. Was I meant to nominate a theme as well? I've nominated no, the drink. Of... drink. We, are, we are our drink and our drink is us. <laughs> okay, fine. Brilliant. Well, I've nominated, I've nominated the theme of uh, English beer and I've got a mug here. It's a bit early for me, frankly. Uh, I'm normally having a cup of tea at this time, but I still remember the bit in Four Weddings and a Funeral where the guy who talks about tea in any detail is satirised as a complete bore. So that, that's, I won't talk about tea. So, and I've got, the best the co-op could do, I've got, I've got a bottle of Whitstable Pale Ale, um, which I'm going to open shortly. I, I'm going to wait, I think, until a little bit after five. But um, that's for two reasons. Am I, am I meant to say why? Is that, is that yes, what I'm meant to do? Yes, yes. Fine. So the, the first reason is that uh, my wife is French. And so over the last uh, you know, 10, 10, 12 years or so, I've, she's been on a journey from regarding La Bière Tiède. You know, all French people from Asterix have a view of English beer as just profoundly revolting and obscene. Uh, as being something that's even not worth talking about, something that she will talk about, to something she'll taste, to something she actually will drink, to something that's actually quite nice, to something she actually prefers to continental lager. So that's been a long trajectory, but one I am very proud of. Um, uh, and the second reason, and if you'll just indulge me for 30 seconds, is my absolute favourite quote, and I, I just made sure I got it right before I came on, is from Jim Trevelyan, 
uh, in his introduction, his marvellous book, English Social History, which is that the poetry of history lies in the quasi-miraculous fact that once on this earth, once on this familiar spot of ground, walked other men and women, as actual as we are today, thinking their own thoughts, swayed by their own passions, this will end, I promise, but now all gone, one generation vanishing after another, gone as utterly as we shall shortly be gone as ghosts at Cockcrow. And if you look at the place where many of our historic pubs are, often they have been, there's clearly been a drinking house there of some sort, not just for hundreds, but in some cases probably for thousands of years. I was, I was looking at the history of the Angel Islington. That is on a crossroads on a Celtic roads that predate the Romans. So there's probably been some sort of gathering or meeting or drinking spot there for over 2000 years. And the word ale is a marvellous word. It comes from probably, we can't be certain on these things, from the Proto-Indo-European word alu, which means ale. So that's nice and easy, uh, with an overtone of sort of magic and drunkenness. So I think when we're drinking a pint of ale in an English pub, we are communing with the past as well as hopefully communing with the future. Okay, that's, I'll stop there, I promise. That's superb. I'm open now. <laughs> Thank you very much, Nicholas. Uh, that's superb. Well, um, as usual, we'll be doing our in-depth discussion with you in the second half of the show, but as I say to all the guests, don't, don't feel um, obliged to stay silent until then. If there's anything you'd like to add to our earlier discussions, please do. I wouldn't um, dread to add to the difficult complications you're going to have about complex planning structures. I'll make a fool of myself. I need some help on the raised Jakarta case. Um, anyway, from uh, me. <laughs> with that in mind, um, let's introduce the main panel, starting, as always, with Mary, not in the woods. No, I'm not in the woods, but I'm, I'm in Wandsworth. I've decided to change rooms, add a bit of variety. And thank you very much, Nicholas, for a really good theme, actually. My journey with ale started when I was at university in Cardiff and I was introduced to Brains Dark. And over the three years I was at Cardiff, I developed quite a passion for Brains Dark. But since then, in, insofar as I, I, I drink, drink beer, this is my favourite choice. Keeping, as our viewers will know, to my Southwest theme, this is called Doombar, named after a, a spit of sand uh, in the Camel Estuary, although it's brewed, I noticed, in Burton-on-Trent. Uh, so that's me. I didn't know that was why Doombar was called Doombar. I didn't know about this bit of sand. There you, you learn two things every day. Um, Paul, good afternoon. God Kaval, Charlie, who am I do? Uh, which you will explain in due course, knowing that you're a native of the place where you're currently uh, staying. Um, can I also... Losing <laughs> the language. This all day. <laughs> right. Uh, cheers. I I'm in Lancashire, but uh, given that I was given a, a very broad brief of uh, English ales, I've gone for something which is named after my hometown, which is Scarborough Fair IPA. Uh, which I look on the back and it says that it was brewed in, in Driffield using malt and hops from the uh, uh, from the wold. So it's all good so far. And then it says, imported by Cuozo SPA, Via Mayorala, Santa Lucia di Prave, uh, Italian. So I have no idea how you take hops and malt from, from Yorkshire, send it across to Italy, brew it, send it back and call it Scarborough Ale. It's yet another dud. That'll be, that'll be being discussed in the Brexit talks, I'm sure. <laughs> it might be rare. Tack, <laughs> uh, Charlie Squall. Cheers, mamma mia. Um, Chris. Hello, you're Charlie. You're, you're, you're the head of Starship Enterprise in number five, I can see. I am. I've been flying the ship today. Uh, I've been having conferences uh, and uh, having some with people in person. And uh, that's my own view about it being essential. Some of the things we've been discussing uh, and I've seen some people who I've really missed and um, we've had some long conferences. I've had a long day. Now I have brought an ale uh, which is called Good Old Boy. 
and uh, I'd love to drink that, but um, I'm in chambers, I've got to drive home, and I'm driving my wife's car, which means I'm taking absolutely no chances, even below the alcohol limit, so I'm drinking coffee. Ah. <laughs> Dasha, how are you? I'm very well. I am in London. I, well, it, this is a bit of an anticlimax because I had a conference earlier today with the England cricket captain, Miss Heather Knight, who was one of the most impressive people I've come across. So I'm afraid I'm now stuck with you five retrobates. <laughs> I, can, I can leave if you like. I mean, I don't have to stay. I've got a lot of things to do. <laughs> um, well, I, I'm actually having tea because I'm saving myself for later because I've got a very nice bottle of champagne in the fridge for when Scotland gets their first major final in 22 years. So here's to the Scotland national team in Belgrade at 7.45. And I'll also will have a shout out for our Northern Irish cousins who have also got a same similar match of magnitude. So my feedback, Sasha, is you've missed the theme on that, but I'll, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> Just commented, it looks from the boxers, mind that you're in a shoe shop, uh, Sasha. <laughs> very, very, very personal comment. Well, Charlie Banner here uh, from Keating Chambers, still in Sweden, still free of lockdown, not dead yet. Um, and um, because it's plus one hour, of course, it's actually dark now and after six o'clock. So I have a slightly more, uh, slightly stronger or less dubious um, justification for cracking open the beers and as i mentioned last week sweden seems to be massively obsessed with craft beer um i walked into the supermarket and there's a huge array of ales and i did manage to find an english one um it's um it's from cheltenham chris no less all the way from cheltenham and it's called invoice me for the microphone which given my love of karaoke um as is relatively well known um seemed to be relatively apt i have got a second beer. Should I leave it? Um, called uh, La La Land. Unfortunately, oh, lovely. Unfortunately, it wasn't orange flavoured, but I'm going to drink that um, to um, the outgoing president of the United States uh, later on. Well, Charlie, as we know that the Swedish ambassador watches, because at the end of last week's show, I said, please don't let people coming from Sweden ah. please put them into quarantine. Two hours later, it happened. My wish tonight is Sweden needs to go into a severe lockdown. <laughs> oh, that's mean. That's mean. He needs to be able to get to Kiev. I'm absolutely no. Oh, I, I, I'll take it back. Stockholm needs to be put into law. Oh, what I what I should say as well, despite being in in the true spirit of digital remote working and globalisation, I've managed to do an inquiry in East Riding of Yorkshire, which ended successfully for my beloved East Riding of Yorkshire Council, Stephen Hunt and his team. Uh, after the first day, um, the Winds and Maidenhead local plan with you involved, also Mary, which was great fun. Um, yesterday and today and tomorrow I'm in Cardiff for a telephone hearing. I'm a little bit worried the 0800 number I was given for telephone hearing won't work from overseas. Um, <laughs> I swears that she's onto the case. So, so that is true remote working, although um, I have brought four suitcases of papers with me. Anyway, um, let's crack on. And um, our first segment uh, I'm going to cover, and um, it's a, um, a court of appeal judgment in a case called Hillside and the Snowdonia National Park Authority. And to be fair, this is almost certainly the hardest case um, I've had to summarise in, in a couple of minutes uh, that I've had to do since starting the show. Um, so here goes. It was a, a landowner's appeal to the Court of Appeal against the High Court's refusal to grant a declaration that a planning permission granted many, many years ago in 1967 um, in relation to land which is now in Snowdonia National Park. They want a declaration that it remained valid and capable of further implementation. The permission was for 401 dwellings in accordance with the approved master plan. 
Um, some development had taken place, but a large amount of it remained unbuilt. Um, and reading between the lines, it seems fairly obvious that permission wouldn't now be granted again for that unbuilt element because it's now a national park subject to um, very high restriction. Um, now, after the main whole site permission was granted in 1967, six further localised permissions uh, were granted for different bits within the site for what were described as variations, although they predated Section 73 or any prior statutory equivalent. Um, there was litigation in 1987 um, before Mr Justice Drake. Um, that was because the then landowner sought and indeed obtained four declarations from the judge that the main 1967 permission had been validly commenced in time, uh, had remained extant and could still be implemented. And local authority had disputed these matters. There was a high court case and the judge ruled in favour of the landowner. Now, after that, in the 1990s, 2000s and 2010s, no fewer than eight further permissions were granted for development that departed from the master plan, but as far as is ascertainable from the judgment, could best be described as, again, localised tweaks. Um, unhelpfully, the judgment, which, to be honest, is, is completely lacking in clarity in several respects, and I'm not the only one to have said that, um, doesn't indicate whether these were Section 73 permissions or full Section 70 permissions, and whether their red line area was the whole site or the localised bits of it to which the tweaks related. Um, park that thought because it may be relevant later. Um, the developments authorised by these localised tweaks were implemented, but as I said, the large chunk of the overall development was left to be built out. Now, Snowdonia National Park Authority subsequently took the view that this meant that the remainder of the 1967 permission couldn't be built out anymore legally due to the effect of what planners know as the Pilkington principle, um, namely that when there's two planning permissions covering the same land and the second permission means that the first one can no longer be developed in accordance with the terms, then the first one is no longer capable of being relied upon. And the landowner uh, said that this argument wasn't open to the authority, pursuant to a legal principle which we lawyers know is raised due to Carter, linked to the concept of an abusive process, pursuant to which normally you can't re-litigate something which already has been litigated and determined. And they said, well, look, you know, we litigated the validity and future implementability about this. They could have taken this point then. They didn't. Um, they can't have another go. Um, now, Lord Justice Singh, giving the Court of Appeals judgment, disagreed. He noted that the raised judicata or abusive process principle wasn't absolute. And he held that, I'm quoting him, the public interest in not permitting development inappropriate in a national park outweighed the impact on the landowner's private interest arising out of what was essentially double jeopardy. And just pausing there, um, I think there's a serious legal question about, uh, about that reasoning, because it rather suggests that raised judicata doesn't apply when the case concerns development in National Park. And if that's right, what about AONB? What about other uh, designations? I'm, I'm putting it mildly far from convinced that the court's analysis is legally sound. Um, Turning then to the merits of the Pilkington argument, which is probably of more interest to the panels amongst you, Lord Justice Singh agreed with the authority that the later developments under the subsequent localised tweak permissions did indeed mean that the original permission couldn't be built out um, and lawfully. And in doing so, he made various comments, some of which it must be said were rather imprecisely worded, and which on one view give the impression that modern day planning permissions, including for large housing developments, should be interpreted as requiring to be built out as a whole, 
um, meaning that Section 73, what we call drop-in permissions to particular parts or particular phases. So you've got very big multi-phase development. Later on, you want to tweak one phase. You do a localized Section 73 tweak for that particular phase. Uh, that the implication of, of his judgment on one reason is, is that that would engage the Pilkington principle and, and that the Section 73 drop-in tweak would mean that the rest of the original permission... Yeah unaffected by that outside the area to which that tweak mission related would no longer be capable of being implemented. Um, it may be that's not what the judge intended and that the case turned on its particular facts, but unfortunately the judgment is so light on detail about the facts and what distinguished them um, and the operative reason is expressed in so broad terms um, that um, it's not clear at all. It seems to me this case has Supreme Court written all over it. I've spoken to the barrister in question this afternoon. There hasn't yet been an application Supreme Court. I'm trying to persuade him to have a crack because I think it's it's fairly certain they would grant uh, permission to appeal. Uh, and I'm not at all sure that if they did, um, that judgment would survive. If you want more on the detail on the case, please do visit uh, Mary's colleagues, Simon Ricketts' blog, um, and uh, he sets it out in far more detail. Um, next case, um, Zins. And Chris, you're going to deal with that. Yes, I am, Charlie. And can I just say, it's entirely obvious to everybody that your case settled yesterday and that you spent the entire day studying the detail of that. I'm exhausted. Again, <laughs> that is a long story. If you'd had less time, you would have simply said, it's about a site just outside Abu Dhabi. You can't summarise that case in any less time. It's, uh, yeah. it's a pretty complicated case. Yeah, but as, as Sasha's pointed out, I now have to summarise the next case in 38 seconds. And um, given that it is 160 paragraphs long, over 50 pages, I challenge you to your claim that you had a complicated case to deal with, right? Now, my, my case is called Barry Zins and East Suffolk Council. And the facts of the case are quite interesting because it's about a listed building in East Suffolk um, and the creation of a lake for recreational activities such as rafting and building and canoeing. And I wonder, well, what's that for? But it turns out, we all know what it is, if I tell you that it was for an application by PGL, who had taken over the site um, and were running children's holidays there and activities. So uh, lots of fun to be had. But with all that fun comes a lot of noise. And so the issue, the main issue in the case was about the noise. Now, this is an issue that often comes up. The noise assessments done by the appellant, by, by uh, PGL, um, were based on the averaging out of the noise, or what we call the LAEQ, and the average noise. Whereas, of course, we all know, if you've been anywhere near a school, children do not tend to average out their screams and uh, their shouting. And so the constant recurring theme that passes between the environmental health officer, the planning officer, the local residents and the applicant is that actually the noise can't adequately be dealt with. And there is an enormous long history to this, not that I can summarise it with any great clarity, but what happens is the EHO, the Environmental Health Officer for the Council, isn't satisfied with the noise evidence. He isn't satisfied that it answers the question about how to deal with the children who are enjoying the rafting and the canoeing. Um, and the issue rumbles on, and local residents complained in their update reports and so on. And in the end, planning permission was granted by the council on the recommendation of the uh, officers. In fact, it was a delegated report. And 
they brought a challenge to the Grants of Planning Permission and the judge had to wrestle with no less than 25 arguments about what was wrong and unresolved and whether it was misleading. And um, the principle that is dealt with in this case is a principle from a case called Mansell, which is, and this is relevant to all officers' reports, what the court says is they will draw a line in terms of quashing decisions between advice that is significantly or seriously misleading, misleading in a material way, and advice that is misleading, but not significantly so. And that's the difference. So you can have situations where some of the information is wrong, even misleading, but is it misleading in a material way? And the judge came to the conclusion, this is before um, James Strawn sitting as a deputy high court judge, his conclusion was that overall, when you read everything, then they haven't been misled. Now, what I think emerges quite, quite clearly here is that the issue wasn't actually resolved. There wasn't a resolution of it, but the members were not misled because they knew all about the issues and it was all set out in the report. So the planning officer didn't have to resolve it, just simply needed to explain what the issues were. And a great deal of emphasis was placed by the judge on the fact the members went out on a site visit and the report records the fact that the site visit was important for understanding the context. And so there's some really good advice there for local authority officers. Uh, if it's a dispute like this and it looks like you can't resolve it, then a site visit by the members to experience the noise would be a way to resolve this um, when it's quite clear that the noise that was being dealt with was very difficult to, to effectively control. Now, another aspect of the case uh, is, and I'll deal with this in 30 seconds, is that there was a challenge also to the fact that it was claimed it was enabling development, which Mary talked about, I think, last week, and how difficult it is to achieve that. And the suggestion was that um, PGL were going to run this and it was going to help all of these buildings which were falling into disrepair. But the judge is very clear that when you read the committee reports carefully, whilst there was reference to the sums of money being generated by putting this, uh, this particular site and these buildings into beneficial use in the lake, actually it wasn't enabling development. There wasn't a link being made. There was no condition and no section 106. So again, it's a warning to be very careful about using the words enabling development, because as soon as you do, as we know, that has particular connotations. Um, and so ultimately the claim was unsuccessful, though the, the, uh, the judge was very complimentary about the claimant, which is uh, a nice thing for the judge to do when you come second. Thanks, Chris. Sounds like an important case to, to bear in mind for number of practical reasons. Um, Sasha, you've got a, a planning uh, appeal for us. I do. Well, it's slightly grander than that. I've got a section of state calling for a very significant employment development, which one of our panellists knows quite well. Um, now, I think that what I want to say about this case is we've slightly taken the assumption that the Secretary of State is very pro-business and very pro-economic development. The case involved a national distribution centre in the Greenbelt, and one of the most, one day we'll have a straw poll on the most subjective piece of guidance and very special circumstances must be challenging for that because we've all seen decisions which have various thresholds mm. of very special circumstance. In this case, I think this falls within that where the Secretary of State puts it very, very significantly because we, uh, we see 
in the, there's also the use, which I think is interesting, of a, a concept, which I don't think I've come across before, and I'd be interested in the panellists. The Secretary of State uses the, the phrase uh, definitional harm to refer to the harm identified in paragraph 144 of the MPPF. So there is this concept of definitional harm, which is um, considered to be obviously very significant weight needs to be given to that. And in this case, the Secretary of State gave that very significant weight and also gave concluded the visual harm of the proposal was severe. And there was also breach of two two purposes of the Greenbelt, encroachment and also harm to openness. Notwithstanding that, there was a conclusion that the economic benefits of the proposal would be very significant. But notwithstanding that, the Secretary of State took the view that that did not amount to very special circumstances justifying the grant of consent. So I think this is an example of where the hurdle of very special circumstances is placed quite significantly high. And it, and it is of concern because I, along with some others, are about to start. There are five major planning call-in appeals in the next three months, all arguing that economic B-class use, B2, B8 uses, justify incursions into the Greenbelt. So um, this is a concern, particularly in northwest England. The other, only other point I wanted to note, as well as it was a sweetheart inquiry, and um, the local authority did not take a material part in the inquiry so again it's a lesson to all of us involved in such inquiries just because the LPN not opposing does not make the journey any easier or reaching the destination any easier so that is the decision in Eddie Stobart Warrington decision and it was released just last week on the 2nd of November. Thanks thanks Ash and having got you to do a uh, cover a decision relating to the northwest of England on Paul's patch Paul's going to cover a decision not that far away from your patch. Yeah, my, my decision was the one in the northwest of England. I was the one that came second. And it's a joy that Sasha picked up on the definitional harm point, because I think that's the only bit of my submissions that the Secretary of State agreed with. Um, so uh, thank you indeed, Mr. Jenrick. I'm now in the West Ferry camp, along with Sasha. Uh, my, my appeal, I, I think I can deal with quite quickly, um, which is an appeal in relation to a site to the northeast of a, a little village in uh, Oxfordshire called Sutton Courtney. Uh, it was an appeal in relation to 93 uh, uh, dwellings. Uh, outline permission was being sought. And there were a couple of big issues that were, were debated, which are quite uh, uh, straightforwardly described, but, but nonetheless are big issues. Uh, one of which was uh, the issue of what applies? What's the, what, what's the land supply that you have to judge this matter against, given the written ministerial statement on the back of the Oxford Growth Board and the deal that was done with the Oxfordshire authorities coming together to put forward a, a joint structure plan um, and the Secretary of State in a, a, a written ministerial statement in 2018 said it's only three years but subject to certain conditions and um, one of those conditions was the submission of a joint uh, structure plan in draft to the Secretary of State and that time scale has been missed so there was an argument between uh, Tom Cosgrove for the local authority and Tim Corner for the appellant to say well uh, should the test be three years or five years given that that time scale has been missed well the inspector very firmly said it's three years and it's for the Secretary of State to review the matter. So that's the big traffic light point for any case in Oxfordshire that you've got in the growth board area. It's three years and it's for the Secretary of State to uh, decide what, what the position is. The other interesting thing is how COVID was dealt with, because the inspector said, I find that there is a three year supply and he ultimately dismissed the appeal. And he made no adjustment at all for COVID factors, nothing, zero, niente, nothing. Um, and he seemed to do it on the basis that there would be a bounce back of some description. 
it's not very well explained in the decision. That's not a criticism we expected because he'd already found that there was that the test was three years and whatever the conclusion was that uh, there would still be a three-year supply. But it does give perhaps an indication that some inspectors are going to be more sceptical about COVID-related issues than, than others and that you need to have specific evidence in relation to it. And I've got to say, on the basis of um, when, you do, when you're given these cases, when I look at these cases, I always look to see what size of settlement I'm dealing with. This was only a 2,300 size settlement, um, but uh, as I say, called Sutton Courtney. But it's where Herbert Asquith is, is buried, where George Orwell is buried, where Tim Burton and Henry Bonham Carter used to live, and where the Empress Matilda, our one and only Empress, uh, was born. It's quite an impressive place. You can see she, she wasn't our there. Empress, and she's not our only one and only Empress. We had Empresses of India, and she was Empress of the Holy Roman Empire. You're wrong on multiple points. As a QC, I'd expect better. Oh! I'm going to take you up on that. The, the Empress of India bit was just Israeli being sick of fancy. She wasn't but fine, Israel. but it was still... Uh, anyway, it doesn't matter. Yes, go on. Yeah, no, carry on, carry on. We'll do this offline, Nick. Okay, yes, fine. Yes, please. I've probably got, my, got myself into trouble for later now. <laughs> you, wait, you wait till your question comes, yeah, Nick. I thought, oh, I think I'll regret that. Now, Nicholas. Brilliant. Thanks, thanks, Paul. Um, well, in which case, we can segue nice and neatly to um, our discussion with Nicholas. And, and Mary, you're going to lead this. Before I hand over to you, can I just uh, ask you, viewers, um, have a little bit of think, a think whilst you're listening to this, to what's your favourite building in the UK? We've done a bit of a straw poll. I've done a bit of a straw poll. And we, at the end of our discussion, we're going to put on screen pictures of, of a shortlist of 10 and ask you to, uh, to, do, to vote. And let's see what your favourite building is. So just mull that over in your heads. Um, uh, sorry if your favourite one isn't on the shortlist. Over to you, Mary. Thank you very much, Charlie. Well, good evening, Nicholas, and we're really grateful for you taking time out to join us. And my Pleasure. first question, my first question to you was, what was the inspiration and purpose behind yours and Alex Morton's book, Create Streets, not just multi-story estates, and the founding of Create Streets? Uh, thank you, and thank you very much for inviting me. Um, well, obviously, I mean, the, 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 the inspiration was a trip to being q to buy pot plants. That was the primary instigator. Uh, it really was. Uh, so, uh, as I said, I, I live in South London. And about eight, eight and a half years ago, I was driving to being q to buy pot plants. And I was driving past one of the, the big post-war estates. And I noticed they were starting to knock down part of it. I later turned, learned it was phase 1B. Um, and I've always been, you know, uh, interested. I'm not a developer or designer by background, um, but I've always been interested in the built environment on the same logic. If you're interested in architecture and interested in birds and bees, there's sort of pretty much always something to look at. Um, and I just got curious, Googled what they were replacing it with, and I freely admit at a superficial level was, was very unimpressed. And I just started wondering, well, why do we build things which quite strongly, though instinctively, I feel doesn't look like the sort of place people would want to spend time in. And so I, um, by happy coincidence, I was mouthing off to an old friend of mine, and it turned out he knew someone, I'm deliberately not naming the estate, so I can be quite rude, but um, uh, he knew the guy who'd worked on, you know, a key part of the, not quite the master plan, but the project to pull it all together. So I bunked off work on a, on a, on a Friday afternoon and went to speak to him and said, well, I, I asked him very basic questions. I knew I didn't really know what I was talking about. And at the time I was running quite a big bit of Lloyd's Bank and I got into the habit when people tried to sell me things I didn't understand or push something at me to ask very, very basic questions right as far down into the logic as I could. So I asked this guy, where are people happy? Where do people want to live? What, what is a good long-term investment in a bit of town or city? Because you know, he was, his client was a London borough. So presumably it doesn't matter how much money you can make in six months, but long-term value is presumably of and prosperity is presumably of interest to local government. And, 
you know, bless him, he couldn't answer any of my questions. Not only could he not answer them, I, uh, he, he obviously regarded me as a bit of a fool for asking them, which quite pissed me off. Um, <laughs> and so I just started scratching and in spare moments, I promise I will speed up, but I, you know, no asked, trying, trying to answer those questions. And I, the more I read about it, the more I started looking at planning policy, and I should spend, I had a bit of a background as a hobby of, of writing think tank papers, the more I started to think, hey, hang on, um, the, scene, the, the, the evidence on where people want to live and why and how is frankly quite obscurely buried away in many cases, not, not all mm. of it, but some of it, certainly some of the important bits, and it doesn't seem to be influencing planning policy. It's certainly not influencing the policy debate. And then I went out to some of the people who convinced me that they sort of got it, and who said things that did seem to reference the data I was finding, none of them knew any of the data. And so I went to speak to architects and urbanists, and none of them could speak in a way that I thought would influence treasury officials, because they couldn't link, if you like, the urbanism and the placemaking to evidence on you know, longevity or childhood obesity or air quality or how many of your neighbours you know, or et cetera, et cetera. And so that was the, to, to finally answer your question, I'm sorry, that, 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 that was the moment of inspiration. And then as I started drafting it, a, a dear old friend of mine who I shared my draft with thing, like, am I mad here? Because I know nothing about this by background, but the more I read about this, the more obsessed I get. He said, no, you lucky bastard, you've just found what you're going to do for the rest of your life, clearly. Uh, and I've known this guy since I was about 12, and I realized he was absolutely right. And so, um, you know, what's the old Bob Monkhouse joke? You know, when I first started trying to be a comedian, they all laughed, but I'm not laughing now. Um, and so it's sort of the same logic. It's, I just think the more I read about this and the more people I speak to, the more I think this, where we live is incredibly important for our, out being, our outcomes as humans. It's not the main thing, it's not the only thing, but no. the latest American meta-study estimates, and you, know, you can never be precise on this, about 40% of our personal health outcomes are a function of where we live. You know, that, I mean, it almost doesn't matter if it's 20 or 80%. It, it's, it's material. It's huge, it's huge yeah. though, it's huge. Well, I mean, it's, it's great, you're great, and I'm well, so I'm not, glad you're, I'm, no, 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 you're, it's really inspiring. And actually, this is just reminding me that this week, we did a special edition of this show to the young planners. One of the points I made to the young planners was that I thought, unlike us, <clears throat> that us regular panelists who've been doing basically the same thing for all our lives, I felt that the young generation will be different and they would be doing different things. And you're a really good example of someone who's had a fundamental career change. So I salute you. Thank now, you. I, I move on to the interview. Create Sorry. Streets has been very well received. And what do you regard as its greatest success to date? Well, that, that's a very kind question. Thank you. I mean, not, not everyone's well received it. I can assure you we get quite a lot of stick and possibly deservedly so. Um, I think we have punched a bit above our weight. Um, and I should just say that, you know, that is thanks to, you know, any success has many parents. So, that, you know, that's not just us. The, the impact we have had is due to hard work by many others. And now above all is due to the very hard work and brilliance of the team that I've now got, Neda and Robert and David and Lauren, Constance, Hugo, John, Rose and Toby. So they now do all the hard stuff. I just sort of, you know, flipper out on the top um so you had but, to choose one thing though what would you say is it no no well, I, I promise I'm gonna, that was just my, that, my precursor i will answer the question no, actually the key thing is the least intang is the is the most intangible because i could point to policy wins in the mppf or various local plans but I, I won't point to those i point to the fact that we're having this discussion and that something that when i started was seen as frankly quite eccentric and obscure has i think now come to the forefront certainly prominently into the debate about housing and planning, and actually not just the debate about housing and planning. I think some of the debate about, you know, where we live, towns versus cities, our settlement pattern and leveling up, I think is now reflecting some of the work that we and many others have done. So I think the fact that the nature of the political debate has evolved, I'm very proud of. And just one other thing, if I may, is when we, a few months into the, the Building Better Commission, which I helped chair last year, we one of our many bits of public 
feedback we got was, thank you for doing this. Now we feel we can talk about beauty again. And I think the sense of liberation that certainly some of the civic groups we work with have felt that it's okay to allow their instincts about where they want to live to matter and that those instincts actually reflect a deep wisdom rather than just necessarily a sort of perverse prejudice or idiosyncrasy. The fact that people feel liberated to, to care about that, I, I'm, I'm very proud of. So, so if, we've, if in some way we've helped on that, well, we're, we're pleased with that. And, and rightly so. So um, as co-chair of uh, Building Better, Building Beautiful uh, and the, a member of the task force, um, I wanted you to explain uh, why you think good design is so important. Now, in some of the things you've said, you've already alluded to some of the answers. You talk about mental health, uh, the outcomes uh, 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 of where people live. Um, do you agree that the man on the Clapham omnibus is just as capable of judging good design as a highly skilled architect or indeed, you know, a, a client commissioning a building? Um, well, there's two questions and lots yes, of unpack in that. Well, let me let me, let me uh, answer the first one first. And then, and why, then, is it, and then, why is good design yeah. so important? So, so, I mean, in a nutshell, good design matters because good design is good for us. Um, and thanks to uh, an explosion of our capacity to understand human well-being at a spatially precise level, we can now, I think, I was going to say assert. I think we're beyond that. I think we can we can say that with confidence and with a greater confidence than really ever before. You know, and it's just much easier and cheaper to do this type of research. So, uh, just almost at random, off the top of my head, to pull out some some tendrils, you know, street trees. You know, street trees are reliably associated in several meta studies, obviously with cleaner air, but but also with cars driving slower and with fewer accidents and with people walking more. Um, clear block patterns with clear backs and fronts. Uh, you've got a front of the building looking out onto the public realm and the back of the building's consistently looking out into private gardens or maybe a safely accessed communal garden. They're reliably associated with low levels of crime in both UK and Australian studies. Um, uh, facades which have got variety in a pattern, some level of symmetry and, uh, and uh, consistency at different levels are associated with people walking more and feeling more comfortable when they do. So you, you can pull out all these things. That's not to say that you know, we're all the same, or that I know what you like or what Charles likes. Um, but the types of places that tend to be good for most of us, most of the time, are fairly familiar because we're humans and we're about the same height and we have the same essential metabolisms. And, and although they vary by climate and culture, they still rhyme. So you know, the right enclosure ratio for Marrakesh is, is not the same as for Stockholm. Um, because you've got different levels of sun and heat. But, but that, the idea that people like places that feel quite safely enclosed but from which they can possibly still look out, that, that's consistent. So, so I'll stop there because you know, so good design matters in a nutshell. And not actually not just for well-being, but also for our, our, our footprint upon the planet and sustainability and how in control of our environment we feel. And, and then the second point to your uh, man or woman, just to, to, to de-sexist de yes. your, your question yeah, yeah, yeah. On, on the clap among the right. bus. Um, well, I, I think in, in a way they can tell better in that they're not uh, you know, a bit befuddled by many years of education and they go straight to their gut instinct. And mm. I, I, you know, there's a, there's a well-known study, which I think you, people have heard me talk about before, uh, though there are others done by David Halpern about 20 years ago, where he looked at, um, he was trying to actually research uh, how people responded to repeated exposure to faces or to buildings. Uh, and he was researching on students because they're cheap. Um, and he found that essentially people's perceptions of faces were pretty similar, but he found a very dichotomic response in people's responses to buildings. 
and that I mean to, to, to not go into too much detail but crudely the architecture students disagreed with everyone else and vice versa and that the longer people have been architecture students the more they disagreed with the rest <laughs> of the student body now yeah there's lots one could unpack that and I probably haven't got we haven't got time now in a way but no. uh, so that's not to say that the architecture's view the architect's view is invalid it really really isn't but it is to say that that instinctive response without having to overthink it it is valuable and I think you know, all of us because in our way we all do as do many others no doubt watching all of us who sort of professionally work in the built environment need to sort of keep that in mind. Um, what the architect will be able to do better is obviously use his or her professional expertise to turn the idea for a place into something that can work and can stand up and whether things will go in the right places. And they can probably explain better why they're responding to something. But the, the need to get that instinctive human response to a place more clearly in, actually into the planning system, I think is, 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 is existential. And the, and the good news is it's getting much cheaper to do, um, you know, online tools, all sorts of other mechanisms. This, this is not, this is getting an easier problem. No. Okay. Thank so you very much. It's a long much. answer to a short question. No, no. I apologize. What can, what can you tell us? Uh, I, I'm, I'm going to skip my question about e exemplar design. Um, I, I, I want, well, I'm interested, and I think our audience would be interested um, to learn a little bit more about the new national design body um, that uh, government has set up and your role in that. When's that going to sort of kick off as it were? Right. Well, I, have to, I mean, so, um, that was announced in September and it was prefigured by uh, a few lines in the white paper and actually by one of our recommendations in the in, in the Building Better, Build a Beautiful Commission. Um, and so I've, I've actually pulled out, I've pulled out the brief, which was so Nicholas will chair a new steering group that will advise government on how best to help communities set these local rules for local development and ensure that for the first time in history, you could have a discussion about that, uh, beauty design and high environmental, high environmental standards are fundamental to every planning application. And the new design body will support communities in producing binding design codes for their local area, massively increase focus on design and quality in the planning process, and ensure local design and architecture is recognized and conserved. So then, that's the brief. And the reason I read yeah. that out was, I mean, we, we're literally just starting and I have to be a little cautious because we're just putting the steering group into place at the moment. I mean, I can't yet tell you who's on it because it's sort of, it's sort of, it's, it's working flight. Um, and if I start sort of speculating too much on that, then people will say, well, he's made up all his mind before, before it all kicks no. off, which I'm a bit nervous no. of doing, but that's, that's the brief. And uh, we've been asked to, to report back in the, in, in the new year. Might, might we expect to see sometime next year some new uh, planning practice guidance, for example, about um, design codes as a result of your work? Um, I, I honestly can't answer that question, not, not okay. because I'm trying to be, uh, no, I, mean, no. I, I don't know is the short answer, in the sense that okay. it's, it's too early to answer that. What I think I can say, because it's a matter of public record, is that the government has committed to producing a, a new national design code. Yeah. Uh, I think precisely something that I, I genuinely don't know, I don't think it's that far off. Um, and that that will put, try and put a little bit more clarity on the National Design Guide that was published um, uh, last year, I think. And I think I'll add one thing, if I may, if it's helpful from our work on, on B4C, the Building Better Building Mutual Commission, would be that, um, sorry, what we set out in that, and, and were the government to ask for my view, this is what I would say, would be, uh, you know, the, the role at a national level, if you like, is to, is to set the framework, to set, to use a Christopher Alexander phrase, uh, set the patterns, to say that these are the types of things that matter. And I talked about some of them earlier, so block pattern, enclosure ratio, yeah. facade quality, yeah. obviously connectivity, but place as well as connectivity. So I think it's sensible and helpful for national bodies to sort of, to set that out in a way that different local planning authorities at different scales and with different budgets can understand. But it must then, and this is, I think, really existentially important, it must then be for local communities, either at the uh, borough or district level 
or at the unitary level or at the parish or at the neighborhood plan level to actually define what that means. There has to be clearly some constraints around that because you can't have, you know, uh, being unfair, but, you, know, you couldn't have a neighborhood plan putting in place a design code which had sort of you know, aluminium, no, had sort of you know, platinum co so coving to every building just to make any new development completely you know, unviable. So you'd have to have some you know, yeah. constraints, which no doubt you, you, you and your good colleagues of the law can, can argue over. But, uh. <laughs> okay, well, thank you very much for answering um, my questions. I'm gonna throw it out open to the panel. Sasha, what's your question to Nicholas? Thank you, Mary. Nicholas, one of the big, big stresses currently, particularly articulated by responses to the consultation paper of resources, particularly at the LPA level. What, what do you say is the relationship between resources, particularly relating to design, conservation officers, design officers, etc., LPA and the ability to produce quality design? Is, is there a relationship between the two? Yeah, yes, I mean, that's unavoidable. Uh, and that was one of the very consistent bits of feedback uh, or in response to our call for evidence that we got last year as part of the, the, B, the B4C Commission. Uh, and I, I, certainly from what I've heard and seen, I haven't yet read many of them, but from the public responses to the white paper, some, some of which I have read, that's definitely a theme that comes up there. The number that's often quoted, I think from some TCPA work a couple of years ago, is a 50% reduction in budgets. I think that's a bit of an exaggeration because I think that's the, the worst end of the scale. But it, it, again, it doesn't really in a way matter what the precise figure is, that the direction of capacity over the last decade is clear. Um, so look, I think that, that does need to be uh, ameliorated. Uh, the Secretary of State said as much uh, in an interview he gave on the 20-something of September to me as part of the Create Streets conference. So I, I mean, and I think that's referenced in the white paper. So I think that's understood. Then there's a discussion about, you know, how much. Uh, the only sort of caveat I'd put on that, though I think it's a non-trivial one, is that if the planning system does go in the direction that certainly I've advocated and the Commission did, and that I think is also advocated in the white paper, where we're putting a little bit more focus on strategic planning and the placemaking and the plan making, and at least much of the time, not all of the time, consequentially less focus on development control because a little bit more of the good ordinary is, is, is predefined. Um, that should allow for more efficient use of resources, but that you can't wave a wand and take people from A to B. So that doesn't actually help us at a managerial level. And I think there is, though it's easy to overtalk it, the, I think the scope for digital process engineering to allow some of the smaller style, just off the boundary of, of planning applications to be processed much more efficiently, you know, uh, back, back elevations or modest height extensions that are just beyond PD, I think there is scope to do that and to machine read that and push back some of the stuff into PD that perhaps doesn't need to be a planning application. So I think I think there are some tricks to play, but but I don't think it gets off the hook that some more capacity is required. Thank you very much. Charlie, your question? Thanks, Mary. Nicholas, what role do you um, see, if any, um, custom self-build housing uh, playing in raising uh, standards of, of design in communities? And can I also just ask you to elaborate on your term good ordinary, because I know it's something that Paul and I really liked in our pre-discussion with you yesterday. Yeah, good, good ordinary beer. Um, no, um, so I mean, self-build, custom build, and I'd actually add to that, if I may, I'm not trying to wriggle off the hook of the question, I'd add actually small builders and small developers as well. You know, any way you cut the numbers, the proportion of English or British homes that are built by self-build, custom build and small builders is, is just way lower than any other country I've seen data on. It slightly depends how you cut it, but you know, it seems to have gone down SMEs from about 40% to somewhere between 12 and 16, depending on where you draw the line. Uh, self-build, custom build is you know, below 10% in this country. It's up to 40 or 50% in most uh, European countries or indeed in the States. And, and that is very fundamentally, and there are other reasons, obviously, but it's very fundamentally due to higher planning risk, leading to higher financing cost, 
uh, lack of specific allocation for sites, but it can't just be that. So I mean, we've got to get into a system where we're obeying the rules of good regulation. Good regulation essentially means you, you know what you can do and what you can't do and who you know and how experienced you are doesn't really help you much. It's always going to help a bit. But we're in a situation, there was a developer who said to me a few years ago, the worst thing that can happen to me is that the development control officer changes halfway through a process. Now, actually, if you just step back from it, that's a shocking sound. He wasn't, there was nothing about, actually, to, to you know, it's a, the quality of our civil servants. They're, they're remarkably uncorrupt when you consider how much value they create, you know, when they have a stroke of one of these things. Um, but we've got to get to a situation where it's clearer what you can build in, in many situations, not all situations. There'll always be conservation areas and idiosyncratic things. So to answer your question, I think driving up the ease with which small developers self-build, custom-build, and I see them as a continuum, mm. uh, as they used to be historically, because often, you, you know, there's a street near where I live, uh, which a friend of mine lives in one of the houses there. The, the builder built the biggest house for himself. That was self-build. And then he did his, you know, then he did his, you know, his speculation and built another five or six houses. And, and that's a very similar model. And it, typically it was done on essentially a pattern book set by the landowner. So we have to get back a bit to that. And that should, I think, drive our self-build and custom build up to more normal proportions as opposed to the tiny proportion they're at. And, and to answer your question, they should be made very easy to build the good ordinary. And I don't mean that in any way pejoratively, you know, the standard house, standard materials, but and setting very clearly some things and then allowing the owner or the developer essentially to do what they like if it's not predefined. So be completely free or be very strict. Thank you. Thank you. Paul, your question, please. Uh, thank you very much indeed. Uh, Nicholas, I'm very, very tempted to ask you about whether or not the Royal Titles Act 1876 <laughs> still applies in the last... No, 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 no. Yes, it does. The answer is 2.7. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about that later. Uh, <laughs> I'm really interested in a couple of things that Charlie's just picked up on in your answer, one of which was um, the worst thing that happens to the planning officer changes, which I suspect will be resonant with almost all of the people watching this. And that's not, be, not necessarily just because of the particular whims of the planning officer. It's because we deal with a desperately under-resourced system, which is one of my big, big concerns about all these aspirations in terms of improving it. It is desperately under-resourced. So we're not dealing with planning officers in teams, we're dealing with planning officers dealing with things which are huge, and I've got nothing <laughs> sympathy for them. Yeah, I, 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 just for the record, I, I would absolutely echo that. I, I would strongly echo that. Um, but going back to the point that Charlie raised, which was the last point about good design, uh, sorry, good ordinary, which is a phrase that I know you have used. We've had a number of people picking up questions about, well, what's beautiful mean? What, what, what do we mean? And is beautiful going to be the, the opportunity to have some flat roofs, green covers on the top and some some that? What does exemplar mean? And we mm. used all these, these terms which are hyperbolic, but good ordinary, when you used it, really struck a chord with me because what we're really saying, uh, are, are we, is that we're dealing with things which are uh, 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 something we can walk away and be proud of, even if it's not top of the tree, something that's viable and achievable, even if it's not top of the tree, something that Lord Rogers might not have designed, but a good quality architect would walk away and suddenly be proud to live in. Is that what good ordinary means? I, I think it's... Um... I think the important distinction to make here is between what we aspire to do as a society and what that means in individual circumstances. So I think the word exemplar is problematic because it implies it is much better than everything else. I think the word beautiful is actually much more helpful um, because beautiful is, you know, it's not just what a place looks like, though it does include that. It's the life that you can lead in it. And if you'll forgive me, I just, um, I've just pulled out a quote from Fiona Reynolds, which I find very helpful. And I apologize for reading. Uh, and what she, she says, it doesn't matter if people disagree about exactly what they find beautiful. The process of debating and discussing it 
will lift our collective sights and help us strive for better things. And it's notable, and I, I, I quote planning law with, with caution in the present current circumstances, but it's notable that in some of the preambles to some of the interwar planning acts, it uses the word beauty. If you look back at some of the town and country planners of the late 19th century, very early 20th century, they use the word beauty without, you know, without fear or favor. And it, and it fell out of use during the 20th mm. century. We, perversely, we regarded it as sort of, you know, as, as, as too um, highfalutin when it's absolutely the opposite. The highfalutin people won't use it. It's a word that's used completely happily in, in, in everyday and ordinary life. We often, when we're running workshops, we have people saying they want somewhere that feels like home, that's got a heart, that feels beautiful. It's, it's a word that, you know, people outside the system use very, very easily, um, or perhaps, perhaps not easily enough. But so, but so beautiful is, is a name. And what we suggested in B4C was that we should aspire to build beautiful places and create beautiful places at the level of the MPPF alongside sustainable design, but then allow people locally to define what that means. And that then can't be exemplar. That, that needs to be, right, what does that mean? That means quite practical things about street widths or about how you can drive through it or how complicated the facade pattern is or what the block pattern is or whether there are street trees. You're looking very doubtful about this. But you, wait, 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 you, yes, just simply because uh, the word beautiful, sorry, I'm not going to ask you a follow-up question, but the word beautiful does tend to give emphasis to the aesthetics rather than the livability. Last week we had a, um, a conversation with regard to shelter and about how important how people live, that the environment is, and what you were saying about health and where people live being um, really tied together is, is resonant, particularly for um, the, the, the lower echelons of society. So that my concern is beauty does tend to focus on the outside rather than the totality of it. And that may just be an issue of definition, Nicholas, sorry. That's what I was yeah. There's no difference in, or very, very little difference up and down the sociological scale in terms of what people prefer and their desire to live somewhere that they find yeah. attractive and livable. But, yeah, but it's a longer discussion than we've got time for now. Indeed. Chris, you've been waiting very patiently. What's your question, Chris? I have. I, have. I personally don't have any difficulty with saying uh, what is beauty from an architectural point of view, because I think we know what it is. If you go to Bath and you see the Royal Crescent, that's beautiful. There's no other word for it. It's impressive as well, but it is beautiful, really. And um, Regency Cheltenham is beautiful and uh, the high street in Chipping Camden, I've lived in various of these places, is beautiful, but it's usually the collective uh, of all the buildings together that is beautiful, that makes it beautiful. An individual application for a house or a cul-de-sac or something like that, very much more difficult to judge whether that is beautiful. And it just leads on to my question, which is there's lots of criticism about design of modern buildings and particularly modern houses. But in reality, I have to say a lot of the stuff, a lot of the houses, the developments I see um, are pretty good, I think. Now, people will criticise. It's about context. But I don't know, Rob, uh, our IT guy, has any of the photographs um, of the development that Mary did in Tetbury uh, in, the, in the Cotswolds. There we go. Uh, that's that's a development that Mary got planning permission for. Uh, area of outstanding natural beauty, two hundred plus houses, beautiful. I think uh, really, really beautiful. And that's a modern development built in the last two or three years. If we go to the next one, um, that's uh, that's yours truly with long hair during lockdown or just outside of lockdown, obviously. Uh, I, I did something on the other side of town. I think some of the stuff that gets built now is really beautiful. And I'm not sure all the criticism is justified uh, at all. And then the last thing Rob was just showing was the pattern book. I'm working at Nebworth, which is a garden village. 
and the client has dug out the original, look at that, the original pattern book for Nebworth Garden Village. We'll put those on our website. It's amazing to see what's written there. Um, I think we used to do beautiful, and I think some of what the house builders now do is beautiful. Um, not everywhere, but do we really need a revolution? Do we need to code it all? That's is the question. Your... Is, is that the question? <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, um, so, no, I, I would. I, I'd certainly agree that we do create some beautiful places at the moment, and I, I, you know, you could add others. You could add Marmalade Lane in Cambridge. You could add. Um, uh, Winkworth, there's a whole, there's a whole range of, of marvelous things that are created. So I think the trick is, is, um, is to raise the standards of the ordinary. Um, and we come back to this theme. So you know, looking around some of the uh, piles of boxes that are tipped in the field um, on a, because actually we're already using pattern books. All the volume house builders do use pattern books, but they're pattern books that have functioned on their cost model rather than the quality of what we create. Um, and they say, uh, you know, these are great places because look, we can sell them, which they can. Um, but then if you look at the, uh, if you properly look at the value of what they're worth, and particularly how they hold their value over time, and then compare it to uh, places with different qualities, much more like the marvellous places you were just showing, because the, the point isn't that you can't create great places right now, but it's just you often have to fight against the system. So I don't know the history of those, but I do know the history of some other good places. And you have to push against, for example, the highways rules on turning circle or on width of pavement, or you have to um, push to get bigger windows or whatever it might be. So certainly in certainly several developments we're currently advising on, I have to say bluntly, the problem is part of the planning process rather yeah. than the opposite. And that, that, that's perverse. Um, so it's, it's, it's not that we have prevented doing good things. It's we've just made it incredibly hard and advantaged a model uh, that is not incentivized to create good places uh, with a properly connected street pattern. So that's a slightly rambling answer. I thought it was the best no, I could no, do in the circumstances. Nicholas, thank you very much. Uh, uh, we are sadly uh, running out of time. So I have to hand back to Charlie. Thank you. Let's get that poll done. It would be great to see what a bit of audience input in this. So um, <laughs> slightly arbitrary shortlist of 10. We, we're confined to 10 from um, the um, uh, from the polling function on Zoom. So first choice, um, I'm going to show you the pictures first of all, the body and library in the Radcam in Oxford. It's my favourite as it happens. Uh, next one up, Cardiff Castle. I felt it's important to have, as we're best in the UK, one from each part of the UK. Um, Paul's nomination, the Cunard Building in Liverpool. My father's home city, as you can tell from my accent. Durham Cathedral, um, one of the finest buildings in the UK by most people's judgment. There we are, Bummy Haven, um, the new Bullring shopping centre, the Selfridges Building in Birmingham. Has the Parliament. It's got to be on the list, surely. Um, and in Northern Ireland, uh, the very Stormont. fine building. Um, Sir Pancras Station, who at least one person has already mentioned as their favourite. I know, Chris, that's one of your favourites. The Scottish Parliament Building in Edinburgh. To be fair, you need to go inside that to really appreciate mm. the building. It's really stunning. Because <laughs> that's where you can't see it. <laughs> no, no, no. Ooh, no, no. And then, um, this is masterpiece, St Paul's Cathedral. So, um, those that's in our shortlist of 10, appreciating it is a, your constraint. So, please vote now. <laughs> I'm disenfranchised. Yeah. Yeah, no, I can't vote either. I'm quite annoyed. Can we just right. I was going to say, well, let's ask, can we, have we got time just to ask Nicholas as yes. long as he gives us a one word answer? What's your choice, Nicholas? I, I'm going to go for a favourite street, not a favourite building or a favourite place, which would be um, either the Peace Hall in Halifax or Gold Hill in Shaftesbury. Oh, yeah. Wait, now let's close the poll. Rob, if you could do the honours, close the poll. Let's see what the results are. 
Can, can I just ask Charlie, was that definitely a picture of St Pancras and not Chris's house? Whilst we get the results, why not do champion of the week and uh, a nudge of the week? So, Sasha's um, on champion. Champion, you do champion. Yeah, my champion this week is to Laura Archer, the chair of the young planners of the RTPI, because I think what the job she's doing is remarkable. The program they had for a conference, let's be honest, most of us fall asleep when we've got to get to a conference. The conference she has put together was superb and immaculate, and she deserves a huge amount of credit for putting that together. So our, my champ is Laura. Congratulations. Nudge of the week, and then we've got the poll results. Um, nudge, nudge, nudge of the week, uh, there's two. One, one, well, in fact, they're both serious. One is Trump, get out of the White House. Two is local planning authorities. Are you, in fact, uh, sorting out your the statement that you all have to do in December? your funding statement remember everybody that's the new new rule december funding statements get on get on it thanks neri uh, rob over to you uh, results so sir pancras wins it by quite a distance wow very wow. wise Surprised, actually uh, <laughs> yeah. oh there we are and uh, Radcam comes in second um brummy um brummy building sense on easter up its game um that's very interesting. Brilliant, really. I, have say, I have to say, Charlie, although I'm obviously very partisan and support the ball ring, which is amazing, I think St Pancras is entirely head and shoulders above the rest. It is extraordinary. And if you haven't seen it, uh, you should go and see it because it's you just... Know what? You get very complacent about buildings you use and see often. I use St Pancras Station very often uh, to go up to conferences in, in the Midlands and the restroom places like that and maybe actually you get a little bit blasé i felt a bit like that at the end of my four years at oxford to be honest I, it's only now going back but i really appreciate it for what it is there's an element of sort of blaséness. anyway um thank you all very much for joining us um thank you in particular to uh, nicholas for coming on and stimulating yeah and thank you very much i'm going to post on my website some of your um uh, some some links as well. Uh, next week and the week after, we've got two guests. I can tell you who they are now. So next week, we've got the wonderful Priya Shah, the founder of Bain and Property, the leading ethnic diversity network in the built environment sector, and a communication specialist for Grayling, specialising in housing and infrastructure. And the week after, we have Andy Street, um, the mayor of the West Midlands and former managing director of the John Lewis Partnership at Feeding Waitrose. We do hope you can join us for these and indeed subsequent episodes. Uh, our shout out for the special, oh, the Young Planner cool. special. We've got the Young Planner special. I've been right about five times and having attention. <laughs> uh, the Young Planner special is going on YouTube 4 p.m. on Saturday, um, by which time I should be in the Arctic Circle for a little weekend trip up to the Arctic. Charlie, Charlie, just to add, in terms of that special, although we do a format and talk about digital inquiries, we also include sections on your most embarrassing day at work and uh, who you would have to a dinner party uh, for your rule of six. So it's not the usual deadly, deadly serious material that we usually cover. <laughs> Indeed so. Um, have a great weekend when it arrives, everybody, and we will see you um, next week when we welcome Priya Shah. Thanks again, Nicholas. Really appreciate it. Yeah, if, if you want to stay on, Nicholas, for another hour, we'll keep going. Yeah, actually, <laughs> we'll do another Zoom right now. <laughs> Cheers, everybody. Cheers. Take Cheers. All right. Well, that was the show. We hope you enjoyed it. If so, uh, please do consider making a charity donation. And if you want to watch us as well as listen, the show is broadcast live at 5pm on a Thursday. And it's also available afterwards to view on our YouTube channel. Thanks very much to our producer and IT guru, Rob Newbury of Blue Bear IT. Music was provided with the permission of the Ruby Tuesdays. <laughs>